sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 86 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and boy, do we have a current show for you. The For the People Act, formerly known as HR1 and now known as S1 because S stands for Senate, is one of the most expansive reforms of our electoral system proposed in some time. And the left says it'll provide national standards for mail-in voting, reduce the influence of money in politics, and reduce gerrymandering. And the right says it's a federal infringement on state sovereignty. Everybody's yelling about it. Nobody knows what's in it. So what do we do on YDHTY? We talk to somebody who actually knows the subject. Election Babe is back for her third time on You Don't Have to Yell. It's a three-peat to give us the good, the okay, and the not-so-good of the bill formerly known as HR1. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, the podcast and webcast on electoral reform and multipartisan democracy. First and foremost, you may notice my background is a little bit different than the one I usually use due to some issues here that I shall discuss later. But with me is uh, is Jenya Coulter, a.k.a election babe on Twitter. She is one of the foremost experts, in my mind, uh, in the mechanisms of, uh, of elections and of modern democracy. And I'm very, very happy to have her back for you. I think it's your third time on You Don't Have to Yell, correct? Yes, maybe the third time's the charm. That's it. That's it. And so for the third time, your big reward is getting this crappy background and having me fumble with my AV setup, which you all didn't see in the recording but needless to say, was long and laborious. Um, before we get started, I, I feel the need to qualify the presence of this background and, and my flustered nature right now. So we're, we're recording this. It is St. Patrick's Day today. So a couple of things have gone on today. Um, first and foremost, I don't know if there's this tradition in Florida, but here on St. Patrick's Day, a leprechaun visits your house and drops off candy and other things do you does that happen there or no is that just boston area with my luck it would be a puka okay okay so today was saint patrick's day the leprechaun arrived a little late that for me involved a uh, 5 a.m trip to the convenience store to grab some lucky charms and skittles and things of that nature um, to make the magic happen now needless to say I'm now my my grandparents are all like off the boat Irish. So, you know, I'm it's I am I I I hold the the old country as my grandmother said near and dear to my heart. And now my plan to exact revenge is just to ruin somebody else's culture with some fakakt holiday scheme and I was talking to my wife I'm thinking like the new thing is going to be 
on the feast of Saint Anthony, Chef Boyardee comes down your chimneys and delivers SpaghettiOs. You know, I'm not quite sure. I'm still hashing out who's going to be my victim. Somebody's getting it. Look out. I invite you here to talk about HR1, the electoral reform bill that just passed the House and is uh, awaiting a rather uh, contentious reception in the Senate. And so what I wanted to get out of this conversation and you know, what I wanted to have our listeners figure out is what's good about the bill, what's bad about the bill, and maybe first, just to set things up, is this something that was needed like today? Like, is there urgency for HR1 today in your mind? Compared to what was going on in 2019 when the original incarnation of HR1 was drafted, I think so. There are several states that are enacting legislation that is almost, shall we say, punitive. And there may need to be a federal check on some of the things states are trying to enact. Now, of course, states do have a lot of latitude in how they conduct elections, but there are some things that are, if nothing, if not discriminatory, getting very, very close to that edge. And the main thing is you want to protect people's fundamental right to vote. Mm -hmm. And the more states throw roadblocks at it, the more tempted the federal government comes into play, you know, Captain Captain Save a government. And what I do think is necessary is what I, there's an adversarial relationship between the federal government and the state governments when it comes to a lot of things election related. And I think what HR one's intention was, is to ameliorate some of those tensions. Does it, I think it depends on which section of the bill you're talking about. Before we get into the bill then in terms of state's measures to restrict access to voting, which ones do you feel are maybe the most punitive or which ones do you feel are are the most in need of being addressed on a federal level? Banning the ballot drop boxes. Personally, if it were up to me, I would have election mail drop boxes be under the jurisdiction and protection of USPS because technically they're mail. Mm -hmm. Even if we're put in a drop box, that's still, I mean, that should still, I think that should still be under some kind of postal protection. And also, the we had, um, in Florida, they are trying to get rid of all of the drop boxes, which costs our state about $16 million. That's not a small chunk of change. And the thing is, our ballot drop boxes were wildly successful last year. I think about mm, a fifth of our voters wound up using the drop boxes across the state. And the people who used them the most frequently were folks who were caregivers of the elderly or hospital workers who couldn't get off shift to take the time to vote. I mean, this benefited a lot of people. It wasn't it didn't just benefit Republicans or Democrats. It benefited everybody. And seeing somebody try to get rid of that just to make a political point and also wasting taxpayer dollars just seems a bit counterproductive to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember on one of our earlier episodes, you know, Florida seems to have kind of the gold standard for vote by mail. Uh, We do have a really good VBM program. Um, There's some states that do all vote by mail and they do just a fantastic job. But I think what we, what I do appreciate in Florida is that we have, you know, no excuse absentee voting. And we do try to make sure that there's plenty of opportunities to mail the ballot. And we're moving over. I think most counties are moving over to postage paid ballots now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like when you look at HR one, what are the things you see in there that you really like? 
I really like that there is enhanced protection for disabled voters and voters who live on Indian reservations because they are both populations that get almost criminally underserved. And I do like that there's a renewed focus on how we can get people voting and how we can bring voting to them when it may not be realistic all the time to get to a traditional polling place. And I like that they're trying to expand access in tribal languages for voters as well. Not, not all of those languages are written. So that's one of the, that's one of the things that can get make outreach there a little tricky. So I appreciate that there's a renewed focus there. I like that they are going to mandate 15 days of early voting. However, there's a caveat to that, which I'll get into in a little bit. Okay. And I appreciate the protection of ballot drop boxes. And I admire their um, passion for, for expanding automatic voter registration for states. And they're actually willing to help the states set these things up, which is nice. Yeah, that was actually going to be my follow-up to that. Because I know from our prior conversations, you know, one of the things that you educated me on was the fact that you know, there's a lot of financing of just the running of elections that's left to the states and left to municipalities. And so is there funding in HR1 to help these changes occur or is that going to be or, or is some of that going to be left to the states? I think in most cases, yes, there will be a disbursement of funds. I think HR1 um, set aside about 500 million. Okay. And... For um, certain things, they've also earmarked additional funds. Now, whether or not that involves state matching, um, that remains to be seen. It depends, I think, on the state. Now, what in there, is there anything in there you don't like or anything there maybe you feel is unnecessary? It is an unwieldy piece of legislation that attempts to amend at least seven or eight pieces of existing federal legislation. Mm -hmm. So it's covering a lot of territory. and it does kind of run the risk of not sticking to a couple of laser focused topics instead of it's doing something a bit more, I guess it's more like a, it's more like a blanket drop or instead of um, targeted assistance. Yeah. And there runs the risk of having everything done sort of okay, but nothing truly excellent. Of course that could, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about that, but that's just kind of when you try to tackle everything something usually falls through the cracks. And sometimes one thing you don't want falling through the cracks. Yeah. It's sort of the Jack of all trades problem, huh? Mm -hmm. Got and it. There, I mean, I, I appreciate that there are, um, there's definitely funding to get um, people, kids who are 16, 17, more interested in civics. Mm -hmm. Now this is a misconception about HR one. A lot of people have is that they're saying it would allow 16, 17 year olds to vote. It doesn't. What it does do is it basically tells states you need to start pre-registering 16 and 17-year-olds, which many states do. That way, when they turn 18, they're registered and boom, they can just get, hit the ground running. So when you hear the arguments then against HR1, so just the examples of it effectively, it's it, I think the arguments are sort of building on the trope we heard in 2019 about uh, about voting being insecure, about voter fraud being widespread. Um, do you feel that there are legitimate arguments against HR1, or do you feel like it's more of just trying to restrict the vote to a certain segment of the electorate? I'm glad you asked that. 
one of the things that I have found on Twitter is when I have voiced my um, concerns about HR1, there is inevitably at least five people who go, you're for voter suppression. And I'm feeling yeah. like I've processed more voters than you've had hot dinners. Yeah, yeah. Some of, some of what HR1 is asking for is admirable. It's also about as likely as meeting Elvis in Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. HR1 Which, does, not, HR1 does not have particularly realistic timetables. Some of this stuff needs to be not just codified into law, but enacted and launched mm -hmm. by a, a date in 2022 prior to the federal elections. And I'm thinking, this is the government. There is no way that in 2021, even a quarter of what they are aiming for is going to be put in place. Mm -hmm. Pilot mm -hmm. testing might be underway, but a full on a full rollout, I doubt it. Yeah. So then they're, then they're going to get critiqued because they promised all these things were going to be done on schedule and then they're not, which lessens the faith of people in government, yada, yada, yada. One of the other things about HR1 that also I do have some concerns about and several, and again, people who have more of an opinion on the state having more influence in elections than the federal government have pointed out there, this is kind of an overstepping of the federal government in some areas, like mandating same-day registration. Mm -hmm. I think that honestly should be left up to states. There are some places where same-day registration, like um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, it works very well. In Florida, it might be a different story because about a fifth of our population doesn't even live here half of the year. And we'd have no way of independently verifying whether or not that voter, if they're a snowbird, has voted in another state or not. So unless there's some sort of way to check, I think forcing same-day registration is something that they might consider compromising on. Like automatic voter registration, excellent. Online voter registration, excellent. Same day, eh, not without ID. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there are kind of two things I want to pause and, and hone in on in your, in your last comment, because, you know, number one, and this comes up again and again and again and again on this podcast is it is very, very difficult to enact federal legislation that doesn't disproportionately impact a certain region positively or negatively. It is very, very difficult to create one size fits all legislation in a number of areas. Um, I think elections being one of them. And, and with everything I've learned from you, uh, it's very obvious that a lot of that, a lot of those mechanisms need to be left up to the states. Because like you said, you know, Florida, you have a lot of snowbirds. Montana, you have people driving up to one, two hours to get to where they need to go to vote. There are just so many different variables in place that I'd, I'd agree. I think the states need to be able to exercise some level of autonomy. The second part of that is, you know, to your point about being attacked on Twitter, it is so difficult to express either a nuanced opinion or an opinion that even just questions a policy you endorse because of this automatic hair trigger reflex to assume that anybody who so much as, again, questions a, a policy your party supports is automatically allied with the other party. And, and it just kind of gets into the zero-sum nature of our politics that really needs to change. Well, let me segue in that I'm really glad that you pointed out that certain things, I think there need to be, the states need some latitude to decide what works for them. Um, the 15-day extension, the mandatory 15 days of early voting. For most jurisdictions, particularly large jurisdictions, 
that's excellent. There are certain jurisdictions, a lot of them are in New England, where elections are conducted at the municipal level. They're these tiny little townships, and these election administrators don't just handle elections. They also handle multiple other functions. And 15 days of early mandated early voting for some of these jurisdictions would be really, really difficult without a ton of funding and support and personnel. Mm-hmm. It's so I think that there needs to be some consideration in that some jurisdictions may not be able to handle that administrative burden initially. And maybe they need to be granted a little bit more time or they need to be able to partner up with other, other jurisdictions in order to make this thing a reality. To that point as well, I think a lot of people, they really like what early voting does. They really like the idea of same-day registration. I think what people don't understand is exactly how much it costs and how much it costs municipalities to do it. I mean, one example that I cited in an earlier episode was Fulton County, Georgia, for the Senate runoff election, had to pay, I think it was $6 million in order just to do that runoff, just to do that second Senate election was $6 million. Now, to kind of put that in perspective, the school budget the same year was cut by $10 million because of COVID. So, it, it, you know, again, if you want 15-day early voting across all states, that's great. Just keep in mind that money's coming from somewhere and it may not be the federal government. It may be somebody's school. It may be healthcare. It could be any number of other things you like. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I wanted to take a short break to remind you why we're all here and how you can help. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know how strongly we need true multipartisan democracy to fight the us versus them narrative and politics and make this democracy a marketplace of ideas as it was intended. And ranked choice voting is by far the easiest and most practical way to open up our two-party duopoly to some real competition. And if you know this is important, and I know you do, and if you want to take action, which I also know you do, go to rankthevote.us. It's an organization dedicated to building out the ranked choice voting movement in every state in the union. Sign up and you'll receive updates about ways you can take part in your home state. Remember, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root, and you don't get closer to the root than the ballot box. I hope you'll join me. And now, back to our episode. One thing you mentioned, and I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on, because this is something again that I think is probably a bit more controversial to people on the on in the on the left. You're very pro voter ID, right? Yes, although not for the reasons people think. Okay, okay. Well, here's your here's your time to clarify then for the for the folks on Twitter. Okay, voter ID makes things a lot simpler on the administrative end. If somebody can hand me their ID, it can be scanned. They can be looked up in the electronic poll book. They're issued a ballot and the system knows they voted. Everything's fine. So I think IDs, and also there's some people who have the same name, same date of birth. How do we make sure we have the right one? We don't want to get, I mean, that is to me the beauty of ID because at least then, you know, hey, I have the right person. 
I'm really not that worried about voter fraud, at least not in person. I mean, I'm not going to say it's never happened, but it's it's extremely rare. And a lot of times when somebody's been accused of voting twice, there happens to be feature in an electronic, in the old school electronic poll books where if you tried to void or spoil a ballot, if a voter made a mistake and needed a new ballot, if you, you have to process that particular procedure on paper, because if you process it through the electronic poll book and you don't undo that check-in, it makes it look like the voter voted twice. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's not, so it's like, that isn't even voter fraud. That was just a design quirk that had unintended consequences. Fortunately, they, the electronic poll books have come a long way and they're better than they were. It's just so I think with ID, it makes processing considerably faster. And, but I'd rather see them be more a push to get people who really need ID, some form of ID, so they can use it not just to vote, but to get housing, to get medical care. I mean, ID, are really, ID is really important, you know, not, and it's not just for voting. Yeah, well, that was something I, I thought because you know, I read into the arguments against voter ID um, because I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm ambivalent on the issue, but I've only heard the, the talking points of, of the left and the right on this. You know, generally on the, on the side of the left, the big issue is just that voter ID is another poll tax where, you know, you've got folks who have to, number one, come up with the, the money to get that ID and also just the time to to apply and whatnot, which can be very difficult for folks who are, you know, effectively living uh, paycheck to paycheck, can't afford to miss an hour of work. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is what would be ideal is if I if there was a policy to just get people identification and kind of overcome some of these economic barriers that keep people from having it. Am I am I hearing you right? Yes, and increase funding to the nonprofits like Vote Riders, who actually do help people who were poor or who just got, you know, maybe were released from prison or who were just who lost everything and are starting over. Their whole mission is to help people get an ID. Mm-hmm. And they do such amazing work. And it's like, I would really like to see more federal support for nonprofits like Vote Riders. I think one of the challenges here is. And getting back to what you said about certain areas not being able to staff staff for for fifteen uh, day early voting, uh, you know, New England. I mean, a great example is um, Dixville Notch in New Hampshire, which is always featured as the first place that provides election results for president. And I think there's a total of five people, like five registered voters in Dixville Knox. So, like fifteen day early voting not only would be onerous, but is also absolutely unnecessary there. Do you feel like, is there a way to balance that out and still ensure that a state can't restrict voting? Is You get what I'm saying here? Like, it, it just seems to me like, like that opening, the fact that Dixville Notch can say, oh, you know what, we all vote between, you know, we all go out for a hamburger and then go and vote between seven and eight on election day. You know, if, if they're allowed to do that, that almost creates room for any state to do anything they want. And I guess, is there an intelligent way to do that, do you feel? Is there an intelligent way to, to, to keep from restricting access without necessarily burdening smaller communities that might not be able to handle it or might not need it? I think that maybe coming up with a formula, with a, with a formula depending on the size of the jurisdiction, would really make things simpler. I mean, large jurisdictions, I'm not even sure 15 days is enough to accommodate everybody. There are other jurisdictions, and then there are other jurisdictions where 
again, 15 days would be huge. I'd say like judge it by the number of registered voters or potential voters who could potentially register for places like New Hampshire, which do same day registration and try to base a formula based on that and and geographic size of of the jurisdiction. I remember in our first conversation, I was sure I was going to find all sorts of electoral gamesmanship and corruption and all sorts of other things going on in the voting process. And what I found after speaking with you was that it's generally a very well-run process to the point where it might actually be far more boring, forgive the term, than your average news network wants to let on to. Um, that part out of the way, the other thing you said that I found was really interesting, again, this goes back to our our, our, our first conversation, was that a lot of times certain parties will try to gear or try to rig the game in some way to their own benefit. So an example would be, you know, designing a ballot with a confusing placement um, and and whatnot. And I remember you saying to me, you you said a lot of times when people try that, they outsmart themselves. No, you, you were correct. I mean, elections are, I mean, it's a pendulum. The pen. And the thing is, what do you do when the pendulum swings the other way? And the courts, in most cases, when this when the litigation does go to court, for the most part, a good judge will roll their eyes and go, well, you wanted the game changed, and now you want to change the rules because you're not winning. Take it out in the yard. You have all these individual states working to restrict voting, and, and it, does, they, it does seem extremely targeted to certain populations. Yeah. I mean, let, and let's just be real here. You know, the 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 voting restrictions that are being enacted are 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 targeting populations that traditionally vote Democratic. Am I am I off base saying that, or am I correct? Traditionally, yes. They won't always, but traditionally, yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you see then, like getting back to some of these these restrictions that are put in place? Do you see a situation where some of these folks might be outsmarting themselves? in that same way. Some of these folks might be creating a scenario where it's actually going to blow up in their face and then they've got all these all these hurdles to voting and, and none of the benefits. Well, none of the benefits to them. Um, Arizona, I think, is about to do that. They've, they've drafted some really interesting legislation lately. All right. And my favorite, my favorite one was that ballots, vote by mail ballots have to arrive by the deadline but the ballot has to be postmarked by the Thursday prior to election day. Even if the ballot arrives on time, if that postmark isn't that Thursday, they'll reject the ballot. And I'm thinking it's a postmark. That's just the day the ballot was mailed. That's the CYA after the deadline. Because people can say, well, hey, I sent it in time. The post office didn't get it on time. But, so, but that is not my fault. So requiring a postmark for be- ballots before the deadline I feel like King from King of the Hill going, that's just asinine, Peggy. I mean, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And I, think, I think for some, you know, for, for older folks, you know, sometimes, it's, you know, you just have a lot on your mind and you get forgetful. And even if you can get your ballot on time, if the postmark is why your ballot got rejected, I'd be screaming. I mean, I really do think that is one of the most thoughtless pieces of legislation drafted in a long time. And this is coming from somebody who collects bizarre laws. 
Yeah. Can you, you have to indulge me then what's, what's the most bizarre law out there or is that the biggest one? Um, Cedar, uh, I think in Cedar Falls, Idaho, it's illegal. It's illegal for a mustached man to habitually kiss women. Oh. And in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, it, I think for a long time, it was illegal for a woman to wear red. Okay. Noted to the folks of Cedar Falls and, uh, and Eau Claire. Oh, and Los Angeles has a good one too. In Los Angeles, it is illegal for two dogs to meet within 500 feet of a place of worship or city hall. How old is that law? I don't know. It's been it's been on the books for a while, but I'm just thinking, yeah, the dogs are really going to care where they're getting busy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, I live in Massachusetts where I think technically I could be burned at the stake for witchcraft. So, you know, I'm not one to throw stones at arcane laws, but um, yeah, you know, it's funny kind of getting back to what you said about Arizona. I think, you know, if there's, if there's something I would say to folks on the right who are, you know, still concerned about the issue of voter fraud, despite everything out there, um, and, and maybe more so, I think, concerned about the potential for, uh, for there to be a continuing democratic wave. Um, I, I think if you look at Georgia as an example, up to the 2020 election, you know, Georgia had actually worked fairly hard to gear electoral or gear their election laws around preserving the Republican Party or, or preserving Republican seats. Was Am I incorrect in that or, or no? Georgia is a weird case because one of the things about Georgia that they should be able to brag about is that they offer more early voting days than most states. Of course, the reason they have to is because they still use voting machines or ballot marking devices. And you have to have more days of early voting because there will never be enough machines for the volume of voters you've got. If you look at 2020 as an example of how well trying to put your thumbs on the scales works for you, you know, it's clear it doesn't. Do you have any idea why the Republicans, for example, didn't use this as a chance to get voter ID instated? I think that HR1 could have been a much better bill had there been more concentrated bipartisan support. However, if you read the 2019 incarnation of HR1, you can understand why a lot of folks didn't want much to do with it because it was even, shall we say, a little more unrealistic than parts of this, that parts of this version of HR1 are. So I think that they, there were bridge, a lot of bridges have been burned in elections that I wish hadn't been. And election reform, I mean, the Help America Vote Act, that was extreme, that had extreme bipartisan support. The Americans with Disabilities Act, which also revolutionized a lot in elections, that had strong bipartisan support. Election legislation does not have to be a zero-sum game. When you make elections better for everybody, guess what? You get more people from all parties coming to vote, regardless of race, age, you know, gender identity. So I think that gives, kind of goes back to the putting the thumb on the scale. It's like, yeah, you might be able to keep a group of people from voting temporarily. However, at some point, you're just going, you're eventually going to start messing over your own voters. And then you're going to wonder why they're not voting for you. I hate these questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, what do you think the likelihood of this passing unadulterated is, number one? And number two, if it does pass, do you see clouds on the horizon as far as implementation? 
okay, do I think it's going to pass the Senate? Because it already passed the House. Um, unadulterated, unadulterated. Oh boy, I would hope that certain things got trimmed, shall we say? Yeah. Especially there's uh, there's also some parts on redistricting that I have serious questions about, but that's beyond the scope of this particular cast. Yeah. Okay. So if the magical ballot fairies smile upon this bill and it does miraculously pass with the 10 Republicans that they need Mm -hmm. with implementation, if they want everything by 2022, there are absolutely going to have to be sacrifices and trade-offs made Mm -hmm. because not everything can realistically be got be done by the next federal election. Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting uh, factors is the um, there's a provision that will find you a hundred thousand dollars for disseminating misinformation about elections. And I'm thinking a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Yes. That's a deterrent. On the other hand, voter fraud, committing an act of voter fraud. I think the penalty is at maximum $5,000. Yeah. So committing fraud in an election, 5,000 lying or joke, making a really poorly received joke about elections is a hundred thousand. Yeah. That the chilling effect on free speech, whether people want to admit that to themselves or not. Yeah. And I can tell you and everybody else listening without a doubt, if that were to pass, that would never make it past the Supreme court. Never. Now. I mean, we have citizens United because the, there is a, there is a belief that uh, in any infringement on, on free speech, even if it means people can effectively buy candidates is unacceptable. And so I, I don't see that going anywhere. I think with some of the areas of HR one that have the most people aren't going to think about them, but of course, election Twitter talks about this all the time. Yeah. The prescriptives on election communications, political communications, and I think um, campaign finance. I'm not sure that some of these were thought out to their, shall we say, their edge cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to see the FEC charged with doing the job of really what's the job of the IRS. I also don't think the FEC should be put in the position where they would have to deport a foreign national for spreading election administ- misinformation or for creating a political ad. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that some of the, there's a, I'm not sure if it's, if xenophobia is the right word, but um, there's a little too much terror of foreign influence in American political communications. And it's like, we've got plenty of problems right here. Can we focus on that? Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's funny, like, as, as you say that, I think to myself, you know, the arguments against the against the law seem to be sprung up from a number of uh let's call them conspiracy theories or unsubstantiated theories about voter fraud on the right and likewise it seems like what you're telling me is actually baked in the law are some of the unsubstantiated theories about uh tampering with the vote of the left did i did i hear that right or am i or tampering with the messaging of the left. Tampering with messaging. Yes, yes, yes. You know, there is one piece of federal legislation that I absolutely love, and that is H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act of 2021. Okay. Beautiful and elegant piece of legislation. It's simple. It's to the point. It doesn't bog you down in whereas. It, 
and other, you know, bureaucraties favorites. Yeah. And my only, my only, I've got one nitpick about that. And that happens to be the length of the preclearance period based on a violation of the VRA. And I just think it should be moved from 25 years to 16 years because that's four federal election cycles. But other than that, I think HR four is really well done. And I absolutely hope that passes with flying colors. HR one, I think it needs a little bit of rehab, but I do think that there are, I think the good outweighs the bad, but there's some things in there that really, you do need to decide what the priority, what the priority really is instead of trying to jam it down everybody's throats at once. Cause that is a lot of legislation to digest in one sitting. So HR four, good HR one, needs a redraft and possibly needs to be eight different pieces of legislation instead of one. You could split it into three and it would probably be fine. But one thing I do like about HR1 is that it has provided a significant amount of support for post-election auditing, risk-limiting audits. I mean, this that's my happy fun place. So yeah. I really appreciate that the government is taking election cybersecurity and post-election auditing in all aspects seriously. So that's something that, I mean, that's, to me, that alone is probably worth passing legislation. You know, most of my hesitations are just some things aren't realistic, at least not at first. Other things, it's just, it's asking certain agencies to do too much, considering they've already got a pretty significant workload. If you'd like to connect with Jenya, you can find her on Twitter at election babe that is spelled as it sounds as always if you like that episode please consider leaving a review on your platform of choice and if you have not subscribed yet now is the time to gently press that subscribe button gentle we don't want anyone to pull a hammy okay two things of note number one The recurring theme of what works in Maryland doesn't always work in Montana has come up again. And the right has a point in the fact that rural states would be burdened by trying to comply with the act's early voting provisions. And a one-size-fits-all law in this regard doesn't make a ton of sense. Number two, we need to make room for nuance in American politics. Not a big surprise coming from me. I can hate popcorn and still like the movies. I can dislike ABBA and still like Sweden. And maybe, just maybe, I can dislike the early voting provision in the For the People Act and still like a lot of the bill and not be a Nazi. Maybe. As always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam the Rear Admiral Yaffe, YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios. Adios.